Richmond. Uh, welcome to University of Richmond, those of you who are uh, visiting us for the first time, the Robbins <coughs> School of Business, for another edition of Full Disclosure at Robbins. This is going to become a, a, a brand that I think will live on forever. I'm Mickey Quinones, Dean of the Robbins School. We're here today at the UCROP Auditorium, which is made possible by supported by the UCROP and the UCROP family. We're extremely grateful for their generosity. Uh, one of our just lovely venues that we have here. Now, as I like to say to our students and to uh, people in the business school, business does not operate in a vacuum. And obviously, one of the most important contextual factors for business is the political environment. And that's why we're having the show here today. <coughs> and the resulting policy choices that come out of the political environment. As all of you know, and I'm sure we're going to hear more about it today, a recent election attracted <coughs> national and even international attention <coughs> and also a great deal of money from the outside. And there are as many explanations of the results as there are pundits. Uh, and I'm curious to hear what the explanations are. In fact, I saw on Saturday Night Live already has a character playing Youngkin, so playing Youngkin. there you go. That tells you how much prominence our election got. Sure. Um, now to help us unpack the recent election results and what it means for Virginia, the country, uh, our two veteran reporters, Jeff Shapiro, politi po politics columnist for the Richmond Times-Dispatch, and Michael Pope, reporter for Virginia Public Radio. And my partner in crime here leading our discussion is the host of Full Disclosure. We're actually recording the episode of Full Disclosure, as you'll hear from Ruben. Our very own journalist in residence here at the Robin Schools, Ruben Farzad. Ruben is a contributor to NPR, MSNBC, and the PBS NewsHour, and was previously at Bloomberg Business Week, where he covered Wall Street, international finance, and Latin America. <coughs> Prior to professional journalism, he worked at Goldman Sachs. Born in Iran, raised in Miami, and now raising his family in Richmond, actually right adjacent to our campus. Robin's a graduate of Princeton University and Harvard Business School, and he has graciously gives of his time to <coughs> our students. In fact, I saw you walking around today by the fountain with uh, talking to a student. So welcome, <laughs> take it away. <laughs> All right, thank you everybody for coming. First, uh, some, some organ music procedural things. Please turn off your phones or put them on silent. We are taping and uh, this is being videoed for live stream. You're seeing how radio is made, warts and all. If, if somebody has to cough or go back five, four, three, two, one. It's part of the excitement. You get to see how it's made. Um, you okay? Can you hear me? This is being videoed and live streamed. You can get it at the Robin School website. You also see these microphones are going to my producer's mixer for uh, radio and podcast consumption, and our lavalier house mics are getting the house sound. Would you be able to give me a shot clock back there when you have a chance? <clears throat> and thank you, everybody. Uh, you know, for posterity's sake, we've, we've filled this place up before and it's been such a rush and it spills out into the, the commons and the, the patio outside, but we are being throttled by COVID restrictions. So we're hoping to get back soon. Thank you for coming out. Thank you for those who are live streaming this and for all who want to hear it on, on tape delay and, and, and podcast dumb. Having said that, <coughs> water, throat's cleared, everything good? <coughs> all right. Five, four, Three, two, one. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad, and we are live again from the University of Richmond's Robin School of Business. <laughs> what, pray tell, did Virginia just tell us? 12 months after Joe Biden won the once reliably red state by 10 points, newcomer Glenn Youngkin took Richmond back for the GOP. 
the party's first statewide win since 2009. No shortage of national hot takes on the implications for the midterms, election 2024, and the path ahead for the two parties. My guests are two seasoned watchers of Virginia politics, Pope and Shapiro, who you hear every Friday morning on Virginia Public Radio. Tonight, they're live on stage. Stay with us. This special taping is made possible by our host, the University of Richmond's Robbins School of Business, preparing students to be future leaders in a global business world. The Robbins School, where real-world teaching, scholarship, and service are at the forefront of the curriculum. More at robbins.richmond.edu. And by Salomon and Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. Recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at salomonludwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts at link fulldradio.com. Joining me on stage at the University of Richmond's Robbins School, the duo of Shapiro and Pope, Jeff Shapiro, veteran politics columnist for the Richmond Times-Dispatch. He's been in the RVA since 1979. And Michael Pope, his battery mate of Virginia Public Radio, he's reported for NPR, the New York Daily News, and you can often catch his analysis on CBSN streaming. Hear them both Friday mornings on VPR. Welcome. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. I got to jump in. Uh, no shortage of attention for this election. We didn't. Uh, did you guys anticipate that? Uh, I mean, I, is, it an, is it an upset? Certainly an, an upset in that it, it upset the conventional wisdom. Uh, Virginia has been bluing. Uh, I think the shade of blue is important. It's probably closer to Carol, Carolina blue than, than Michigan blue, uh, but we nonetheless saw a Republican win by two points and change a year after Joe Biden won the state by 10 percentage points. I think, not to take anything away from Mr. Youngkin and his, his victory, um, cost him a lot of money, $20 million of his personal fortune, but there's more where that came from, but maybe as the evening progresses, we can talk about how Michael and I have discussed this um, off and on over the, the campaign. In Virginia, there's an election every year, and every election has a different electorate. Yeah, I want you for our listeners to explain the peculiarity of this election, because tremendous amount of eyeballs on it, and that it's the first, technically, it's the first referendum on the Biden Biden presidency, or on Reagan elected in 1980, or Reagan in 1984, or you could look at Bush in 88. Uh, Virginia seems to be the first place nationally that the party, the opposition party, can kind of put its hooks into. Yeah, so Virginia actually has this really interesting timing where the race for governor directly follows the race for president, and there's a long history of Virginia acting as a counterpoint to what happens in the presidential election dating all the way back to the late 70s after the election of Jimmy Carter, Virginia gave us John Dalton. And then when in the Reagan revolution, Virginia gave us Chuck Robb. And then when G.W. Bush uh, was elected, Virginia gave us Douglas Wilder. And then when Bill Clinton was elected, Virginia gave us George Allen. And then when W. Bush was elected, Virginia gave us Mark Warner. And then when Obama was elected, Virginia gave us 
Bob McDonnell. So there's actually a really long history of Virginia acting as a counterpoint, and that's a sort of a magnetic force that's you know, worth remembering. Jeff Shapiro started by saying it was a, a, an upset to conventional wisdom. One piece of conventional wisdom we can probably throw in the garbage can is this idea that high turnout elections benefit Democrats and low turnout elections benefit Republicans because this was a huge turnout for a gubernatorial election, 55%, way higher than any of the other recent elections. And, and Democrats increased their turnout. They actually, they had really good numbers compared to the last election for governor and the election for governor before that. It's just that the Republicans se severely increased their turnout and, so, and won in a high turnout election. So you say an upset for conventional wisdom that was the biggest upset for conventional wisdom, I think. Just a footnote to, to Michael's point. Um, I think that to some degree, the higher turnout, 55%, the highest in an election for governor since George Allen's victory in 1993, that was a 50% <coughs> turnout. Um, the Democrats did well. They didn't do as well as they had to with their preferred mix of voters. Uh, also, this um, pattern in which the party that wins the presidency one year loses the governorship the next, that we call that the Virginia curse. And it was restored. It was restored, but it was disrupted once, and Michael didn't mention that. I, I didn't mention that. Well, I, I was looking at when new presidents are elected. So, I mean, you can look at all the presidential elections, and then the re-election of Barack Obama is the outlier when Terry McAuliffe was elected. But that was a re-election. So, I mean, if you look at just the election of new presidents, the pattern still holds. But for background on this, as I saw, the, the, you know, before Obama in 2008, the last time the state elected a Democrat was LBJ in 64. I mean, even in the Carter, you know, Southern retake and everything, Virginia stayed out and opted out and voted for and Bush twice. And the counterpoint to that was, wasn't it Mills Godwin, the, the Democrat turned Republican, who was the only other person other than McAuliffe to try to come back? And the reason I think Mills Godwin won, running that second time as a Republican, was because Virginia reverted to form. Mm. It voted what it was, which was a center-right state. Uh, against a significant challenge in the form of Henry Howell, the great fire-breathing populist, but also in the face of headwinds from Watergate, Richard Nixon, fuel prices, an issue we heard a good deal about in this campaign, a balky uh, economy, certainly a, an uneven economy. Uh, there were similar problems for Terry McAuliffe, uh, hostility for Joe Biden, uh, disappointment even in a state he carried with his performance, the inaction of Congress on the, the various infrastructure uh, initiatives. And then I think uh, uh, it's, uh, it's easy to fault the, the, the loser, but I think to some degree one must underscore that Terry McAuliffe, God love him, has this, in, there's this innate inner carnival barker uh, in him. And he has a way of getting in the way of his message, uh, that he's high decibel, eyes bulging, sweaty and animated. But here's, a, here's my question, is, hold on, but Ralph Northam, he's kind of a footnote here. He was hardly mentioned this election because the other conventional wisdom might have said that to a certain degree he was a lame duck 
as recently as February of 2019 when he was discovered in this yearbook scandal and uh, many elders in the party are calling for him to step down. There's a whole parallel scandal with his lieutenant governor. Not only did he stick around, but the state legislature turned, he, he, he could run on vote, you know, he could stump on voting rights and, and gun rights and uh, marijuana legalization to a certain degree. What's peculiar is the, um, the incumbent party couldn't exactly run on that. I'm not sure, Michael, that he was necessarily radioactive. They did embrace one another to a certain extent, but it's not like, uh, uh, you know, Terry McAuliffe could come out and say, why would you not want a continuation of these popular policies? There had to be a kind of a demarcation. It was seemingly all about connecting Trump to Yunkin. Well, so if you think about the, the series of scandals there in the era of blackface, um, you know, Northam is not running again. Um, Justin Fairfax lost in the primary. Mark Herring lost in the general. So, I mean, the two out of the three that were on the ballot both lost, so there's that. Um, and, you know, in terms of sort of running on the record of things that they did in <coughs> office, I actually do think McAuliffe tried to do that. Every now and then you would hear him talk about his record and things that he did when he was governor. That's not the message that pierced through to voters, though. I think for, you know, if you think about reactions that people had to the Terry McAuliffe campaign, it does seem like it was kind of all about Trump all the time. And any messaging that he might have had around, you know, paid family sick leave or hazard pay or raising the minimum wage, that was all obscured by Trump all the time, which, as it turns out, was not a good tactic. Well, I don't know that the Trump-Yunkin axis is something that people should dismiss. You know, to Yunkin's credit, he packaged himself well. He came across large, in large part because of a summer of largely unanswered biographical television ads as the hoop-playing next-door neighbor who loved his mongrel dog. Um, he seemed approachable. But he's a private he, mongrel dog. Well, well that, uh, and we need to talk about yeah. uh, uh, talk about that. But um, and I think one of the messages uh, from the campaign to to which maybe Michael was beginning to allude, and and by bringing up Northam, I think you did, and that is with this great swing over several years, starting with Northam's election, all of this a response, a reaction to, to Trump, that Virginia, a state that tends to be more practical in its outlook, even as it pivots slightly to the left, I think there was this sense, certainly among Republicans, uh, that Virginia had gone too far. Yeah, and I, one, I, one of the things we never saw from Ralph Northam, and I think we'll, I wonder if we'll see this from rookie virgin governor Ra uh, Glenn, Glenn Youngkin. Will they uh, or will he serve as a check on the excesses or the potential excesses of his party? Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We are live at the University of Richmond's Robin School of Business talking with uh, my esteemed guests, Shapiro and Pope, the duo of Jeff Shapiro and Michael Pope, you can hear them every Friday morning on Virginia Public Radio and Radio IQ. We're talking about the Republican big night, uh, the November 2021 election. I got to ask you, 
Uh, which invisible hand? I don't know which party elder succeeded in keeping Trump physically away from the state and, and away from proximity to candidate Yunkin. I mean, I know that he's been shorn of Twitter for several months, Trump, and he only kind of injected himself into it afterwards and saying he wouldn't have won without my tacit endorsement. But how, who behind the scenes did that? Because I, I was led to believe that the party's still enthralled to candidate-in-waiting Donald Trump. There are a couple of people who were involved in, in that, in, in keeping you know, Trump in his cage, if you will. Uh, there was uh, John Fredericks, who is sort of the face and voice of Trump Republicanism here in Virginia, broadcaster. Uh, Jeff Rowe, who was the principal campaign consultant to Youngkin, uh, is uh, a Ted Cruz guy, and through that uh, relationship, has access to um, that chap in exile. But what did they exert moral suasion or something behind the scenes? How do you even do that? Like, hang low, you want to see how this goes, and you can come out closer to the midterms? How did well, that even but work? The, but what was missing, and which was potentially lethal, was the visual component. At no point did one see Glenn Youngkin sharing the same stage as Donald Trump. When, when Trump did pronounce Youngkin to be worthy, and he did so more than a half a dozen times, it was either by written statement, it was in an interview with um, John Fredericks on his morning radio program, at one point phoning in to a, to a rally uh, here in Henrico, suburban Richmond, while Yunkin was 122 miles away in Forest, Virginia. And then even on the eve of the election, uh, there was a, uh, another Trump splash. It was done in such a way that Trump was at a safe distance beyond the borders of our Commonwealth, and Yunkin was outside of the blast zone. Michael, I want to read from The Economist magazine this uh, this uh, recent issue after the election, one year on, which shows Joe Biden uh, falling into this abyss. The, the Lexington column, and by the way, Jeff Shapiro has uh, for 30 years, I'm told, penned the occasional piece for The Economist magazine. I've recognized your voice and your flair, and it's not byline. So I was struck by this. Uh, the Lexington, co Lexington column said, Glenn Youngkin and Ivy League populism. Virginia's governor-elect is the latest Republican culture warrior with an expensive education. A visitor from Mars might find Youngkin's populist scare tactics at odds with his record of elite institutions. Harvard, McKinsey, the Carlyle Group, and immense wealth. The Martian should then be challenged to find an up-and-coming Republican with a much humbler resume. Populist leaders from Perón to Orban are more often elite figures than working-class heroes. And so it is in the Republican Party. The anti-elitism fervor that has captured the right is largely a creation of rich Ivy Leaguers. Rich people involved in politics is nothing new, right? In fact, if we think about the template for a wealthy guy becoming governor of Virginia without a lot of government experience, we have several examples, some of which are recent, some of which go back some time. So the, I, I think Jeff Shapiro said on the radio recently, to find the last governor with so little experience in government, you have to go all the way back to Terry McAuliffe, who... <laughs> Uh, had never been elected to anything, although he had been chairman of the Democratic Party and knew a lot of players in Washington. Before that, you have to go back to another wealthy guy, Mark Warner, um, wow. who had been chairman of the 
Virginia Democratic Party and knew lots of the key players. So Youngkin is a little different because he wasn't party chairman and doesn't have those kind of relationships that McAuliffe and Warner had. Uh, in fact, to find a template, I think, for Youngkin and his lack of experience with government, you have to go all the way back to a governor from the early 1900s. I'm going to admit to stealing this from Jeff Shapiro. He tipped me off to <laughs> Westmoreland Davis. You recall this conversation, Jeff Shapiro? Yes, and Westmoreland Davis uh, was elected in 1917. Um, there was a wealthy bit guy, of, wealthy bit lawyer, bit of, bit he, of a, he, financier. He owned like a horse farm in Loudoun. And um, the the story was that he was, you know, born at sea, which apparently he was not, but nonetheless, you know, lent to the public's curiosity uh, about him. Uh, he was until Ralph Northam was elected in 2017, the only graduate of the Virginia military, alumnus, he was not a graduate, alumnus of the Virginia Military Institute. And the reaction there was to the 1916 election, which was Woodrow Wilson. So this is actually yet another Virginia counterpoint. Woodrow Wilson was from Stanton, though. Yeah, well, it, it is, so if you think about Woodrow Wilson, so Westmoreland Davis was a wet, and he was you know, not for prohibition. I mean, the politics of that era are like, uh -huh. very different. Um, but it was a, you know, a Virginia counterpoint for that era. Jeff, uh, what is the appeal? I got it. You know, I've, I've covered Carlisle in the past. This is not some middling, you know, buyout shop. This is as bulge bracket as it gets for private equity. Yeah. Global, uh, you know, acquisitive in the very in the very same, you know, Romney mold and Bain Capital, which didn't work in 2012. How did he conceal that so well? And I, I understand that he won more than a dozen counties with more than 80% of the vote, that he did really well in, in rural Virginia. Well, I think there's several things going on here. Uh, first of all, to, to this, this, this notion of, you know, that somehow, you know, rich guys of, as, as governor, it's, it, this is very much a part of Virginia's culture. Uh, the, you know, this, we had, we've had sharply, profoundly uh, patriarchal, paternalistic politics in this state. And, um, you know, uh, well-heeled white guys sitting at you know, the, the top of the pyramid, that's always been cool with Virginians. Certainly as long as the right people, if you will, were deciding who was gonna occupy the governor's chair. And that was you know, often uh, white people of you know, some substance. Remember we had a poll tax uh, and literacy tests that you know, virtually erased blacks from the voting rolls, but poor whites as well government and politics, these were the activities of a certain slice of white Virginia. Uh, but to your question about uh, Carlisle, uh, you know, this, is, this guy did not leave Carlisle under the, under the best conditions. Uh, the financial press, Bloomberg, your former shop, has reported, uh, as has the Financial Times, the Wall Street Journal as well, uh, that the co-CEO arrangement that um, uh, Carlisle had uh, did not work out for Mr. Yunkin, that his uh, partner, CEO, was far more aggressive. And there was evidence, I mean, just look at the returns uh, and Wall Street's response to them, that Carlisle wasn't doing as well as some of its, um, its competitors. Uh, so, And it seems like in that analysis, he was kind of rudderless. I kind of want to go into public service and he rode this, this wave and as a first time candidate won. You covered finance, yeah. you covered Wall Street, 
and you probably know better than I could ever as a political reporter, that if there's bad news in a publicly traded company in the front office, and it means getting rid of somebody, it's done so with great delicacy, of course. lest it send the wrong signal to the market. Mm. And so I think there's some of that behind Youngkin's departure. So explain for me, he won by two points, right? Effectively a 12-point turnaround from Biden's 10-point margin of victory. Um, where was that, wh what surprised you kind of in those returns? And we're gonna depart from this, but I mean, you are based in Alexandria. It's a whole different state, Northern Virginia. The Republic of Northern Virginia. Richmond is very different. The monuments came down last year. Charlottesville is different. You can't compare us to Bristol and other parts or Tobaccoville or Farmville. Uh, what, what, what showed up much more and, and prevailed and determined this election for him? Well, so a couple things to that. One would be the surprising part to me was this huge turnout in rural areas. I mean, if you think about, you know, McAuliffe improved on the, imp in the performance of <coughs> Northam. And so he, he, he did exactly what Northam did and better, and he still lost because Yunkin really, the turnout in those rural areas was huge. There were also swings in urban areas. You know, like I, I live in the People's Republic of Old Town Alexandria, and we actually do have some Republicans there. They're my neighbors and my friends. And I, I tell you, the, if you talk to Republicans who had Yunkin signs in their front lawns, um, you didn't see a lot of McAuliffe signs. You saw a lot, signs don't vote people. I mean, like this is, sometimes people's head explodes when you start talking about yard signs, but there were a lot of Yunkin yard signs out there. And if you talk to Republicans or my neighbors, they were, ups I wouldn't say upset, they were reacting to what they saw as very drastic change in recent years. Virginia got rid of the death penalty, legalized marijuana, uh, made it so the police officers couldn't pull you over for certain things. It got rid of abortion restrictions. It got rid of um, gun, it made guns more difficult <coughs> to get. It made voting easier. I mean, this is a lot of really drastic change that happened in a very short period of time. And a lot of, conservative people, a lot of moderate people felt like that was really extreme and were reacting to it. And this is where we get back to the counterpoint thing I was talking about earlier. I really do think this election is kind of a counterpoint to all this drastic change that Virginia has seen in the last few years. I, I don't think we can underestimate the importance of change within Virginia's population and its electorate. Virginia is, you know, no longer this brigadoon you know, that is sort of, you know, surrounded by this mist and it just sort of goes off in its own way because, you know, it's, it's Virginia. Virginia is of the nation now. The majority of people who live in this state moved here from someplace else. Uh, and they brought different voting practices, different political traditions. Um, the majority, two-thirds of the people who live in this state live in metropolitan areas, most of them along Interstates 95 and 64. And Virginia is a more, is a truly a multi-hued place. 42% of Virginians are non-white. This is made for a far more cosmopolitan, far more sophisticated electorate. What it also means is that in, in a lifetime, the voting strength 
of this state has shifted from the countryside to the cities and suburbs. In 1945, when Bill Tuck was elected governor, product of very much a rural figure, two-thirds of the votes cast in Virginia came out of the countryside. Mm. Fast forward <clears throat> to 2021, two-thirds of the votes are coming out of roughly a dozen or so, and I'm somewhat liberal in my description, uh, cities and counties with populations of 200,000 to north of a million. I would say the results of this election actually also prove the opposite of what you're saying, which is that, so you're saying that um, since the days of Bill Tuck, when sort of the rural vote was the predominant thing and not, you know, the predominant factor in politics, not the urban areas, that now it's the urban areas because of the numbers and the, and the demographics, and that's all true. But this election shows us the political power of the rural areas, if they mobilize in a way that they had not before, they can win a statewide election. They can win not only one statewide election, but three of them, right? So, um, you know, th the opposite is also true. This election does prove the, the, potent, the political potency of rural Virginia. If mobilized. And, Which uh, they were. Yeah. And that was, uh, you know, one of, the, one of the targets that the Youngkin campaign established was to push election day turnout Republicans tend to be averse to voting early, we're told. Push election day turnout to over two million with hopes of harvesting most of those votes and using those election day votes to blunt, if not overtake, the million two early votes, largely Democratic votes, that were cast for 45 days ahead of the election. Full disclosure, stay with us. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts at link fulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate us, and recommend the show to friends and family. If you're just joining us, I'm on stage with Jeff Shapiro and Michael Pope, the duo of Shapiro and Pope that you will hear every Friday morning uh, across much of the state of Virginia over Virginia Public Radio and Radio IQ. Jeff Shapiro is a veteran columnist with the Richmond Times-Dispatch. Michael Pope of Virginia Public Radio has penned all sorts of stories and books for the New York Daily News. You can see him on uh, CBS. And uh, I got to ask you, Abigail Spanberger, the congresswoman, uh, was quoted in the New York Times very famously a few days ago. And she was a, a, a pivotal you know, turning point for the Democratic Party in the 2018 blue wave. I believe we are in her district right here, the Virginia 7th. I don't know how the University of Richmond cuts across that line. but. She said kind of in her, you know, morning after her postmortem diagnosis of this was Joe Biden was not elected as FDR. Uh, but then you kind of feel for Joe Biden and that you realize you have a very tenuous asterisk majority in the Senate and the House and you want to cram through as much in the way of deliverables as possible before you very likely lose both in 2022. So you mentioned Abigail Spanberger. If you think about the election results and what they mean looking ahead, of course, next year is the congressional elections. Um, Kevin McCarthy recently said that if you are a Democrat who's in a district um, that Biden won by, was it 17 points, I think, that you're in danger, basically. So that's two, only two uh, members of Congress for Virginia, uh, Elaine Luria and Abigail Spanberger. So like the, you know, one of the key things about this election is it tells to you, it, it, it shows 
that Luria and Spanberger are going to have a big target sign on their backs, you know, moving into this election cycle. Um, another really important thing about the timing of having the Augier election is that all of the analysis that we're doing right now and the discussion of the election all happens in the environment when people make decisions about whether or not they want to run for re-election. And in a difficult election cycle, in a difficult district, members of Congress, not just Virginia, all over the country, might be saying to themselves, is this something that I really want to do? <laughs> or am I just gonna throw in the towel? So you might have a lot of incumbents saying they, they don't wanna run for reelection and also candidate recruitment. Candidates have to, parties have to recruit candidates and th in this environment, when it looks like the wind is at the backs of Republicans, they will be able to recruit better candidates and Democrats are going to struggle with candidate recruitment. Hold on, but this, uh, do, am I assuming here that Trump manages to stay out of it until after November 2022, when he could potentially take credit for this. Let me just bring this back to Virginia for right. a moment. There's, a, there's another wild card here, and that's redistricting. Mm -hmm. We don't know what the boundaries will be for congressional districts, for state legislative districts, House of Delegates, and the state Senate. Uh, Abigail Spanberger represents a district of 10 counties anchored by fairly blue Henrico, sometime bluing Chesterfield, and a lot of red countryside. Hanover County. Uh, actually, Hanover County is- Was that drawn moved, out of it? I remember she had to the, campaign. moved into the fourth district, as I recall, when these districts were re redistricted uh, by a federal court. Hmm. So uh, let's see what the, the boundaries bring. Uh, there are several announced candidates for the, the seventh district. Um, there are several announced candidates for the second district, the Elaine Luria seat in South Hampton Roads. What's it going to look like? So, this is assuming we ever get new maps, right? I mean, right, and, and the, uh, the craziest process we've it, ever seen. It's it's a cluster, and it's now in the hands of the Virginia Supreme Court, which, under this constitutional amendment that was overwhelmingly approved in 2020 by Virginians who were eager to see redistricting depoliticized, if that's possible. Uh, it turns out that it was even, it was even more political than people that could possibly anticipate. It was hyper-politicized. And right it now. now has been tossed to seven justices of the Virginia Supreme Court, all of whom at one point or another were uh, approved, uh, elected, confirmed, uh, by a Republican legislature, which has the Democrats sort of nervous. You know, writ large, and this has been covered increasingly, the Democrats have a real structural problem on their hands, as, as you see in that these, these states, uh, you know, you, you often see that stat of if you could pull 50 million, you know, 35 million people out of California and populate them across five or six red states, you could equilibrate the results more, but the Electoral College is the Electoral College and the Senate kind of cleaves with that. Does this kind of put that in more into sharp relief? I mean, Michael, you know, you and I were discussing uh, historic electoral college returns. I, I looked at the 96 map and I'm shocked that Clinton obviously took Arkansas, but other states in the South that, you know, where he still had cred, I believe Missouri used to occasionally go Democratic. That, that's kind of just unthinkable right now. Yeah, you know, I mean, you have to remember that when Obama won Virginia, I think the last Democrat that won the electoral votes was Lyndon Johnson. Okay, so that's going back a long time, right? So Lyndon Johnson, all Republican, and then Obama, right? So um, and then there was before a, that, 
was Truman. Truman, yeah. by plurality. So, I mean, long history of being a red state, and then it's, you know, Obama, and so people were talking about Virginia being a purple state. I think after, in the era of Trump, Democrats came to believe that Virginia was a blue state, and this was the new state of things. And this election tells us that's, this is not, I mean, Virginia being a blue state is not the new state of things. That's not, the, that's not where we're at. Five, four, three, two, one. What about Joe Biden? Uh, he's been written off before. It's ancient history now in the early days of the pandemic, the 2020 primary where he was left for dead in South Carolina and, and you know, running the table resurrected his candidacy. Um, and the now guy we have the infrastructure bill right after the, the election. And the infrastructure <laughs> bill. I mean, they seem to the have timing gotten... timing is not great. Don't you think McAuliffe is sort of cursing under his breath and perhaps over his breath uh, about the timing of the infrastructure But truly, bill? do you think it would come down to deliverables? Had they delivered this a month ago, would it have sated enough of the Virginia populace that they would have put McAuliffe over the top? Well, it, might have, it might have done more to invigorate Democratic voters, or if you will, more Democratic voters, and create that, that preferred mix that eluded the Democrats on election day. Um, I've often thought that had that bipartisan infrastructure bill gone through in early October, the second week of October, that what we would be seeing um, ads, uh, McAuliffe standing uh, uh, alongside a dilapidated bridge saying, okay, this is what we're gonna do on, on my watch because of this state's partnership with Washington. It might be a road, it might be a school, it could be an airport. You know, but the McAuliffe-Spanberger so dissonance, you know, you're having him saying, you know, throw me a bone, give me some deliverables, and she's saying, you were not elected to be FDR, you were elected to stop chaos, i.e. the Trump presidency. But we're so talking about a representative of a, a district that has vast chunks of red territory versus someone who's standing at large. The state has vast chunks of red territory that came out that he, he didn't feel, you know, when he, when he stopped the streak and was, was elected, was it in 2013? So on election night, I was at the McAuliffe, not the victory party, but the, I guess the loser party, the, the anti-victory party. The, the wake. wake. The McAuliffe wake, <laughs> which was in Tyson's Corner. And I ran into Congressman Conley and I pressed him on this issue. Are, is, is Congress responsible for this loss? And he was adamant, no, Congress is not responsible for this loss because in Congressman Connolly's mind, um, there was no voter who said to themselves, well, I'm gonna vote for Yunkin because Congress hasn't delivered. That's in the sort of, that's the, <clears throat> that's the analysis of the way things actually happened to transpire, which is that nothing happened until after the election. There is a counterfactual with which Jeff Shapiro just laid out, which I think is worth thinking about. What, so the Senate passed this infrastructure back in August, I think it was, right? So what if the House had passed the bipartisan infrastructure bill in August or in September. And which and Glenn then, Youngkin endorsed. And then the Democrats would run on making your life better and improving this bridge and bringing bus rapid transit to this transportation corridor. And um, there is a counterfactual to think about where Biden looked a little bit more like FDR and delivering some stuff um, before the election and the Democrats were able to run on that and capitalize on that. 
So, you know, Congressman Conley was adamant, this is not Congress's fault, but he was also looking at the facts as they were at that moment. There is a counterfactual worth thinking about where the, where the Democrats got their act together and actually did pass the bipartisan infrastructure bill in August or September, and the environment was different, and we could have had a different outcome that we're talking about. And I don't think we can have this conversation without getting into some of the more uncomfortable elements of this campaign. Please, you, the you, racial, your ears were burning. I the was racial and cultural. Critical race theory, which was the boogeyman, which was brought up, which uh, is not even taught in, in you know, Virginia public schools, but, is, but was an amorphous. It has become a shorthand, uh, certainly for What, like law and order? And it is laden with all sorts of troubling features. Can you unpack that for me? Let's put it this way. If, um, if Terry McAuliffe had some difficulty with his own vote, i.e. the suburban vote, I think it was rooted in this larger notion of the disruptive effects of the pandemic, in particular the educational experiences of children or the lack thereof, mm. and the fear of parents that as kids were returning to school that Verona could disrupt things again. So I think there was, there was I think that was a factor in terms of suburban votes for, um, for Youngkin. But I think as well, and perhaps these are more important uh, issues, this idea that somehow education was becoming a form of indoctrination. Um, that was particularly troubling. And a lot of this is a consequence of what was going on with that new Democratic majority in, in Richmond. You know, one of the things that local schools were responsible for doing by mandate from the legislature was coming up with programs and systems to accommodate transgender students. This became a yowling point in the suburbs. And conveniently, one of those suburbs was just across the river from Washington, D.C. and the National Bureau of Fox News. Mm. So you had this complementary relationship between angry parents worried about critical race theory wondering about how trans kids were going to be handled, certainly in regard to their own children. And Youngkin and Fox and the Washington Times and the Washington Examiner, these right of center news operations, just kind of in a continuous loop, pumping out this, this narrative. Uh, it uh, was hugely successful, but it was somewhat successful largely because of an incredible boner by Terry McAuliffe in the second debate. He was asked a question about two bills he vetoed as governor, one in 2016, another in 2017, that certainly in effect seemed to deny parents a direct say in the educations of their children. And this, these bills in particular dealt with what kinds of books 
kids were reading. McAuliffe said, and this is an approximation, that he didn't think parents should have a role in the educations of their children. The next morning, the next morning, that troubling remark, which initially was dismissed by the McAuliffe campaign, was the heart of a Yunkin ad attacking McAuliffe as blind, deaf, dumb, and blind to what was going on in, 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 in our schools. By the way, Glenn Youngkin, privately educated. Terry McAuliffe, privately educated. The Youngkin children, privately educated. Sent to a school, by the way, that had a mask mandate, <laughs> which the candidate, the Republican candidate opposed. opposed. And the McAuliffe children, all but one, privately educated. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We are live at the University of Richmond's Robin School of Business with the dynamic duo of Shapiro and Pope. Michael Pope of Virginia Public Radio, Jeff Shapiro, the veteran columnist, political columnist of the Richmond Times-Dispatch, came to uh, Richmond uh, in 1979. You told me on the 50th anniversary of the stock market crash, right? Um, uh, so very much has changed back then. I mean, you talk about... What was it? It was tobacco here and uh, railroads and lead for gasoline, right, with Ethel Corp. Well, you, you mentioned tobacco. Um, Philip Morris, uh, now Alexis, was the largest private employer in town, uh, approximately 15,000 employees, many of whom were very well paid. Uh, there, was a, uh, there were a goodly number of, if you will, working class multimillionaires in, in Richmond folks who worked on the production line at, at, uh, at Philip Morris. And got stock got, in Big got, Mo. Got a huge, huge slice of stock. Um, it still pays a great uh, dividend. Uh, now the largest private employer in the Richmond area is a credit card company. So we've gone from you know, manufacturing essentially to services. And that transformation, by the way, is, is evident around the state. I mean, this was a early years of the 20th century. Agriculture was still dominant. By the middle of the 20th century, manufacturing. As we entered the 21st century, services. A lot more money made managing things, often for the federal government, than making things. You know, it, speaking of the transformation of Virginia, Jeff Shapiro just walked us through the history of it, but I, I want to focus our attention on, you know, the sort of pandemic era changes, massive changes that we've seen recently. One of the precincts I went to on election day, ever since I've lived in Alexandria, it was named after a Confederate admiral. And this election cycle was the very first time it had ever not been named for the Confederate admiral. It was named for an African-American woman who was a teacher in city schools. So they actually, I mean, because it was the name of the elementary school, they changed the name of the elementary school. It's no longer the Confederate general. It's now the African-American woman. The voter precinct, you know, when I was you know, checking out the precincts, um, it now has a new name. And so, I mean, this is the era that we're in now. All these names have changed. The statues are not on Monument Avenue here in Richmond. I mean, we've seen this massive change and I think a lot of what we're seeing with the Republican turnout is a reaction to that. So you know, the fact that this 
voter precinct is no longer named after a Confederate admiral who, I think it's buried here. Sam? Uh, Matthew Fontaine Morey. I think Fontaine he's Moore. actually buried in the Hollywood Cemetery. Pathfinder of the Seas. Uh, Pathfinder of the Seas. For a long time was the namesake of this elementary school and voter precinct in Alexandria. They ditched Matthew Fontaine Morey and it's now Naomi Brooks, who was this African-American woman who's a teacher. But uh, I mean, so that is the kind of massive change that we have seen very recently. And renaming this elementary school precinct from the Confederate general to the African-American woman is not critical race theory, right? Critical race theory is a law school concept. But in the minds of a lot of voters, they would point to that and say critical race theory, which they actually, I mean, it, it's a reaction to anti-racism thinking and terms like white fragility that really needles a lot of people. And um, the re the, what we've seen out of this election is a reaction to a lot of that thinking. I would suggest that one of the critical theories of this race is also the competition for voters' attention. Again, this is a state of 8.6 million people. There is huge competition for the interest and the attention, the eyes and the ears of voters. And you know, here we are in a in a universe in which you know a basic cable package is you know 800 channels, and our options now are pretty much whatever's streaming on our our handheld. How do politicians pierce that static when they have seconds to do so? I would suggest that if you look at Virginia's recent political history, the messages that have broken through all that other noise tend to be very emotive, if not trivial. You know, in, in, in closing, in the few minutes we have left, what is Virginia telling us? Should you extrapolate from this? Again, you're going back to the dark red 1980s and the fact that Ronald Reagan was hugely popular and got chunky majorities in this state, and yet, you know, in, when you'd swing to Democratic governors in these off-year elections and everything. Maybe it's just an idiosyncratic quirk of Virginia is just going to Virginia, and you shouldn't extrapolate too much from it, both as the GOP and the Democratic Party. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that you know, people are going to kind of you know, over-calculate, over-estimate, over-correct. Um, I think the Democrats will, will, will be back. One of the reasons I think um, McAuliffe was selected in a heavily attended primary as the nominee is because of the dominance of really the baby boomer vote. And in Virginia, among Democrats, baby boomers are no less liberal than Gen Xers or millennials, mm -hmm. but they are more practical, if you will. And I think that was one of the things that drove the selection of McAuliffe, again, in a heavily attended primary over a field that included three black candidates. So I, I think one of the main takeaways is you can't win an election by going against Trump if Trump is not on the ballot, right? I think it was a strategic mistake for the McAuliffe campaign to be so focused on Trump all the time when they could have focused on raising the minimum wage or family, you know, paid family and medical leave and hazard pay. and They actually did have an agenda set they didn't talk about much, but they, they, they could have. So that's one lesson. Another lesson is that you can't win statewide by just having votes out of Northern Virginia. I think you didn't see the Democrats campaigning a lot outside of you know, Northern Virginia. They could have campaigned more 
statewide. Um, you probably need all parts of the state to win statewide. And so the other lesson would be don't count out rural Virginia. Rural Virginia has a real potent political power that we're seeing in this election. And among Republicans, they were desperate. Their backs were against the wall. They had not won statewide since 2009, and they tried every option. They tried a Trump sound-alike. They tried a Washington insider. In this case, they went with a blank slate, tabula rasa, a man who didn't have a record that could be attacked and who could self-finance. So he is not analogous to Mitt Romney in your eyes because he's tabula rasa. He was not governor of Massachusetts, you know, was not governor of a state, didn't do the Olympic thing. Uh, I mean, can you, can you extrapolate him nationally? the Glenn Youngkin template to what the future of the GOP post-Trump might be? Well, certainly we've been seeing in the, you know, the post-mortem that somehow, you know, Youngkin has established, you know, has roughed out a template under which a Republican Party still dominated by Trump thought, if not Trump himself, can, you know, repackage itself. Again, I think the, the, the Trump-Youngkin access, access is important. These are people, these are these Trump voters, they're going to expect something from this Yunkin governor. Correct, but does it become, again, it's Trump does insert himself, and you both deftly kind of tried to dance around the Trump thing. The specter of Trump, suppose he comes back in and wants sway and wants to primary people into 2022 and 2024. Does that then charge up the 2020 vintage Democrats who came in in opposition to Trump? You know what we don't know? and Jeff Shapiro sort of touched on this earlier, is the influence of the visual. If Trump himself is standing on a stage next to Glenn Youngkin and what that would look like and the message that would send to people, we did not see that in the campaign. As you pointed out, he called in to this Glenn Allen rally and then he made a direct phone call to supporters that wasn't even open to the press. How long does that willpower last is what I'm trying to ask you. Well, I. I I might put this a little differently. When is Trump going to call in the chips? Yes. Because you know if, if, if Youngkin had been defeated, Trump wouldn't hesitate for a moment to say, well, he lost because he was insufficiently MAGA. Well, that he won, Trump is going to uh, take, is clearly already taking credit for that. Certainly, uh, one measure is you know the robust turnout in the countryside. So, this could be tricky uh, for Glenn Youngkin. And I was a newspaper reporter. I hope it is because it's great copy. <laughs> Close us out in the two minutes we have left. Predictions for 2022. To the extent anybody can look into any crystal ball right now. I don't do predictions, but I will say 2022 is a year when we are going to see new maps. I, I actually, I mean, it, looking ahead, I'm actually really interested in the 2022, 2023, 2024 election cycles, plural, when we've got members of the House of Delegates running year after year after year. So they're, you know, fresh on their heels of all those 100 House members running in 2021. They will probably have to run again for a one-year term in next year, and then run again the year after that. And so, I mean, this did actually happen in the early 80s when you had a series of um, election cycles. There also is some interesting historical precedent that um, is worth looking at. 
from the 1770s all the way up to the 1840s, members of the House of Delegates had a term that lasted one year. So from, 17, from 1770s all the way up to the 1840s, those elections for House of Delegates were every single year, and that's what we're headed for in the next three years. Shapiro. Uh, I made this point, and perhaps poorly at the top of the, uh, the podcast, um, we have a different electorate in every election next year, congressional elections. There's a very good chance, particularly with the confusion of new boundaries, uh, that the turnout will be significantly lower. And that may, in some areas, magnify, disproportionately magnify the voting strength of Did you say magnify? <laughs> <laughs> magnify and maybe magnify the voting strength of certain slices of the electorate. Jeff Shapiro and Michael Pope, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Full disclosure, special thanks to producer Claire Morgan at Notterly, Dean Mickey Quinones here at the Robbins School, and the indispensable Andy Miner and Courtney Ennis. Uh, thanks as well to Roger Duvall and David Seidel of Radio IQ, WVTF, and the U of R, our host. We podcast to NPR One, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts at link fulldradio.com. You can find me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, you name it, at Full D Radio. And dare I tell you that we'll be coming to Radio IQ in the new year, God willing. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening. Back with you next week. I do have, I do have some swag for our esteemed guests. In addition to the deluxe U of R uh, face masks. And we have some vittles outside, and, and I believe it's even still beautiful. We can go out into the courtyard. <laughs> Thank you for coming. Thank you for putting up with everything. I hope that we're, 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 we're outside of kind of protocol level attendance soon. Yep. Dean, you could pick it up from here. No, thank you, Jeff. Michael, you've given us a lot to talk about, and we can do it outside in our reception. And, you know, I do a lot of biking and running around town, and you, you talked about signs. Parents for Yunkin, I think, was the signs that I started seeing, and I think that was the turning point right yeah, there. Signs, I, I've always felt, you know, it, it's more than a preference denoted by a sign. It is a level of energy. Uh, yeah. You have to make a choice, and you have to go out and find one, and then you have to erect it on your lawn. So. Right. Again, thank you. Look uh, forward to seeing you all again at our next uh, Full Disclosure at Robbins. Yeah, there are more. Take care. Thank you. Well done. It's worth it.